Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people, whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Ian Montgomery, one of the co-founders of Label Sessions. And in this episode, Nick Sherrard of Label Sessions talks to Gord Sanford. Gord is a partner at EY, and he's tremendously passionate on the topic of future-ready workforces, helping organizations and individuals transform for the digital age. He's recognized it's not technology that holds leaders back from achieving their aspirations, and instead, it's about breaking down the barriers in mindset, culture, ways of working, and leadership. In this episode, Gord recaps with Nick about the talk he made at the recent Supper Club event on the concept of a future-ready workforce. Good. So let's start at the start because we're about to talk about the future of work. So, but before we get into that, rather than me introduce yourself, what's your backstory? What's the what's the past work of uh, Gordon Sanford? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, this is like uh, thirty years of work history, so I'll try to cover it pretty quickly. But in short, I've been a consultant my whole career. I've kind of moved around different spaces, but the common element has always been um, tech-enabled business transformation. So I was a developer in the early days. I, I became a strategist. I, I worked in, a, I led a large technology strategy team, and then I led a digital practice. I launched and led a digital practice for about 10 years. Um, and so that's been the common thread, is working with enterprises at all levels and sizes across sectors, help them transform leveraging technology. Yeah, okay. And would you so, so were you always interested in the sort of future work aspect of that or the kind of cultural aspect of that or that developed over time yeah i think like in my early early days when i was a developer i'm not a technologist i've got three business degrees so the strength the superpower i had was building connections with the business um being able to connect with the technologists um I've always been someone who kind of worked uh, across many different teams and was accepted as those folks. So I was always very focused on operating model, interaction model. Right. And I, I think I wrote a paper probably 20 years ago that talked about how, you know, it's it's often a business or a human problem why the technology fails. It's not the technology. So for a long time, I've been sort of obsessed with the human side of these technology transformations, because I think mostly the technology works. It's it's a gap somewhere else. That's an interesting thing. It's quite often we speak to people from smaller startups or smaller companies, and they're very focused on the sort of the barriers and resource that they have. I guess in your kind of environment, you've been you've been working with very well resourced organizations. They still have struggled sometimes. It's interesting that thing in terms of the problem actually being the people rather than the resource or the tech. Well, it's so interesting that you say that because I don't know what's a better problem to have, like a, a startup that has not enough resources but the right mindset or people or or an enterprise that has a lot of resources that maybe aren't aren't attuned to the change that's happening or aren't aren't capable for the future environment. So I'm not sure which conundrum is easy, but this kind of future readiness of the workforce, I think has it's it's definitely exacerbated. Like it's definitely becoming more and more a problem. I think the pace of change is increasing both business and technologically. And so people that are able to adapt, I think is is a big, big challenge for most organizations. Yeah, okay. Okay, so let's head into it then. So in terms of the supper club this time, um, the theme was future ready workforce. Um, what is it about that term that you think is important? Well, why do you think that's an important thing to talk about, first of all? Well, two things, like how that all came about was I was leading this digital practice and what I was doing was a lot of digital strategies or digital transformations. 
and I, I and and um, you guys know this, but I kept saying the same thing. You're just doing digital things. You're not really being digital. You haven't really adapted to the way the world has changed. So I'd say your team's not really prepared for this new environment that's happened. Um, so I started spending a lot of time on mindset shift, culture shift, upskilling, competency development, operating models as a, as a way to really drive transformation. So that, that's kind of like the bottom up view. The future ready aspect is like a lot of people like that term future proof. And I just think that's like really not appropriate. I think what we're trying to do is tell people to get themselves ready for rapid change, to adopt learning as a, as a mindset, to adopt crushing orthodoxy, like getting more comfortable breaking norms. Like that's the future ready workforce. So what I always say is when you're future ready, you're more comfortable being uncomfortable. You're more comfortable challenging norms. You're very curious, creative, and you're learning all the time. And that's about as ready as you can be for the future. Yeah. It's an interesting term you're using in terms of crushing orthodoxies, maybe especially, you know, coming from the consulting sector, the home of best practice and things. I mean, is this, uh, in terms of the way you're talking now, is, has that been a comfortable journey all the way through? Or have you had different points as you've been thinking about this? that You've kind of- uh, you know what? It's really interesting that you say that because um, sometimes my own peers and colleagues are like the ones averse to the change the most. I'm like, folks, we can't go in there and tell them their cheese has moved all over the place and then we're not ready to do anything differently. So, yeah, yeah this comfort challenging what we think is a norm is uncomfortable for most people. And I'm not particularly comfortable with it myself, but I'm trying to learn that skill and competency. And I think, I think there's tools and techniques and I think there's just there's just practice. Like if you've crushed Normus before and it worked, maybe you'll be willing to try it again. But absolutely, like Nick, I think everyone's trying to get to what's the playbook. Just tell me the answer and I'll implement it. Right. And when you, when you start to say there is no answer, we're going to find our way. That's a very uncomfortable path for a lot of people. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because there's always that pattern where change happens slowly and then suddenly, and I feel like there's been a suddenly moment recently with all the AI stuff that a lot of people are suddenly realizing Hey, either we're going to have to change very fast or the people we're competing with are going to be changing very fast and it's going to create, you know, there's a kind of fear factor that's come in a right. little bit around this kind of the way work actually happens uh, yeah. in recent times. Yeah, like I, I think if you mapped it all out going back to the Industrial Revolution, you'd say technologies are always evolving, but every once in a while they conspire to change the world. Mainframe to client server was like that, .com was like that, digital was like that, probably analytics. If you mapped it all, you'll see they're happening faster they're bringing biz and tech closer together and they're having bigger change. And so the next one will be soon. I think it's like web 3.0, neural, quantum and and AI and it'll change everything. It'll change how we organize businesses, how we interact and the change will be bigger. And so so that's kind of nerve-wracking too because um and that's just with the next one we can see. And then there'll be another one and another one. And so, you know, really adopting this lifelong learning um, ability to to adapt, I think, is really important. And that's what I'm the mentality that I'm trying to bring with future ready workforce. Okay, interesting. Okay, so so in terms of the talk you then gave, and I guess in terms of thinking about it now, for someone listening to this, if you're a leader somewhere, starting to get your head around what this all means, I mean, you just listed some very big, sort of uh, exciting slash scary things like Web three, yeah, quantum, all these different things. How do you start to get your head around? Uh, what's coming next and then secondly how you respond to it or how you get yourself ready for it yeah. well and actually i think you can probably put a smaller group of people focus on what's next because we're struggling enough with what's here 
Um, but what I would say is I'm kind of marrying my whole digital background. I'm like, let's just get started. Minimal viable, find like you I I said ignite the fire, fan the flames, get out of the way. So I feel like once you've proven success, you will build a movement, you will grow. So let's stop trying to like stop and study the problem and figure out the answer. Let's do appropriate things, test and learn, scale what's working, rethink what didn't go the way we will. So I I like just moving forward. And I think what we need to do is create a, a situation where we're learning in the flow of work more readily, where we're bringing in new ways of thinking, new ways of working, new competencies and skills into how we're delivering that work. And we're doing it in a very purposeful and meaningful way to build up these competencies. That's interesting. So is there a tension there between igniting the fire and working in a purposeful way or is there a way of bringing those two together? Well, it's very interesting that you say that, but I agree. Like one of the changes that I've talked to a lot of leaders is it's not about, you know, our big vision is to have this much ROI or be this much market dominant. Like purpose meaning has really emerged as an important thing. And so if you can help someone find their purpose and if you are driving to purpose, you're going to have a lot more grit and resiliency in it. So a big part of what I do is try to create a North Star. And I would say the North Star needs to be bright enough to inspire people to do things they didn't think they could do. But it also be needs, needs to be clear enough to guide us on our path. Like that's kind of how the North Star was for explorers, right? So I, I think that is really important is like we have to get the hearts and minds of people if they're going to change. You know, change is hard. So let's help bring people along. Okay. And do you think that's a change for the leaders themselves or is that a change for like, how do people experience that? Because it sounds like you, the North Star, like you're the explorer to some degree. You, you haven't necessarily got all the answers. I think there's a big problem right now with leadership because I think leadership has changed. But I think even the best leaders recognize it, but there's not a great archetype or model for them to copy. So that old style of kind of big charismatic figure, I set the vision, get on my back, buck stops here, I'll make yep. a call. Like that model, which, which drove like many leaders into their positions today is not the model for the future. The model for the future is servant leadership, growth mindset, empathetic, DE and I let's work on it together, empowering teams. So like not long ago, if you were going for a leadership role and they said, what's your vision for the future for this group? And you said, I don't know, we'll figure it out. You didn't get the role right now. If you said, I've got a very exact plan for five years, nobody wants to come with you. So I, I do think there's a problem with leadership. And we talk about the frozen middle, middle management, where leaders are like willing this onto their team. So you should be more agile and innovative or human-centric. But they're not really giving you the mechanism or the guidelines to do it. Or or with COVID, it's like we got to, um, how do you lead in the hybrid environment? And how do you create meaningful teams? And how do you how do you manage productivity? So they're pushing all that to the middle layer. They don't know how to do it. The middle layer is looking up going, give me an example. There's not one there. So, you know, if I, there's one lever, if a client said, Gord, you're talking about a lot of stuff, what's the single thing I should focus on? It's new leadership acumen and skills. It's teaching leaders new ways of leading. And, and presumably, I mean, but the, by the sounds of that, that is also kind of a abandoning an orthodoxy because the digital transformation agenda until quite recently was very focused on the kind of, you kind of import the people who get it, the kind of visionaries, they kind of do a big do a big town hall in front of the whole team with funky glasses and kind of say this is this what the future is and can come with us. It's a kind of it's a it's an interesting mode of the the kind of idea of building a mo uh, building a movement that is in your prescription. It's quite different from the way digital transformation works. Well, well you'd be really a lot close of to those. 
Yeah, sorry, but a lot of those didn't work. I had to jump in there because yeah, a lot of those digital bigots like from outside came in with a lot of bluster. It didn't actually um, scale. It didn't. It didn't change things. Yeah. And so, what you really want is someone to come in and really ignite other people and spend time and be curious about what the organization's been doing today. Why are you so great already? And and kind of not make it about themselves. It's a, it's a hard thing, but I've seen many kind of digital factories or innovation labs grow and then kind of fall apart because nothing really scaled. It didn't really change things. So, you know, it's it's a hard road to hoe um, to to drive change at the more operational level, but that's what's going to scale and change your organization. Yeah, and I also want to just talk about your kind of model of change there because you talk about building a movement, and that's also something that sounds quite kind of aspirational to me, but also sounds quite counter to corporate culture in the past. So you feeling that, like, how does that work in practice? Well, it's counter to some corporate culture and, and there is a tendency as organizations to get really large, to become more to, sort of corporate and bureaucratic, to become more hierarchical. That's kind of the natural pull of things. Although there's many large organizations that don't operate like that. Like you can, you can resist and be very successful, but if you sort of let the natural pull happen, that'll happen. But if you can ignite the crowd, if you can build a movement, if you can create um, meaning in others, you'll have much more impact and scale, right? Like it's just that much bigger, but it's, you know, it's a different way of architecting change management. And for many years, we use change management wrong. Like change management is tech adoption training or process training and communications plan. And that's not real change management. That's change readiness. It's important. But change management is like culture change, mindset shift, guidance, coaching, um, new ways of thinking, new ways of working. And so if we can focus on that, that's when you get many people being comfortable. And to really create a movement out, I don't think you need everybody on board. I think you need like 30%. And then everyone else will see what's happening and jump on later. That's interesting. It's kind of like the coalition of the willing rather than the kind of like right. you know, converting everybody. That's, uh, that's an interesting thing. It's interesting too, because in some ways we started out this conversation very much talking about the new technology that's coming through the big shifts that are happening. But kind of, is it fair to say that actually a lot of your prescription here is really a kind of model of a more kind of human way of leading? Yeah. Like I said, I wrote a paper. I remember this very vividly. It's the first paper I ever published. It was in 1999. It was all about um, business and technology are getting closer together and you can't kind of throw it over the wall. You got to kind of do it together. The reality is each one of these shifts has moved technology closer to the business, closer to the end user. Like now we're talking low code, no code. So you don't even have to be an engineer to, to develop uh, a, a system. So we got to recognize that shift is happening. Business and technology and human and technology just getting closer and closer and closer together. And a big part of it is the human element, especially right now, I think is is the barrier for achieving all the all the aspiration that you have. So again, like at this point in time in large enterprises where we're talking about digital cloud analytics, those technologies have been solved. They've been in in place for some time. That's not tricky. Um, The tricky part is the human element. And no matter what we're doing, if we automate everything and we have some dystopian future or even very utopian future where robots are doing all our work, what is left for us? And are we ready for that? So for instance, I could automate a whole bunch of back office activities 
but is that group of people ready for higher order things like how to get insights from data or how to do analytics if I've taken away that boring job they did? And I actually think many people want meaning. Nobody wants to be reconciling from one spreadsheet to the other. That's boring and soul-sucking. But do I kind of prepare people for those higher order activities Okay, to really flourish? So if we're going to be happy humans, we need to be purposeful, meaningful, doing things we enjoy that we're competent at and adding value. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So, I mean, it's actually, it's, it's a kind of a massive um, vision for the future and you kind of set it out really clearly. Do you find that when you start to explain that to people, there's kind of misconceptions that they have as they start to apply it? Um, yeah. So you're right. I have a big vision. I have a big mandate. Um, and does it sync with everybody? Not quite. That's when I keep wearing my digital hat and I go, let's just get started. Like, let, let me just proof a concept MVP it. For instance, when I talk to most leaders and I'll say, is your team future ready? There's a pretty common answer. And the answer is not really, or at least I don't know. And not sometimes they don't know. Is it a skill gap, a competency gap? Is it culture or mindset, uh, ways of working? But it's usually a, a combination of that. But people are pretty prepared. Um, the question is, how do you do it? Like, because the way we've been doing this stuff before and, and this kind of learning in the flow of work is is counter to what most people are trying to do. And so that's that's a big challenge. It's like, we got to shift some core orthodoxy. And like, you know, I'm talking about big things like academia is not keeping up. And I think I think we in the corporate world have to help disrupt academia. Most, or most industries were not disrupted from within. I don't think government or academics are going to figure out where education should go. I think they're going to be a big part of it, but I think we need to lean in. And so, you know, that's where it gets a little complicated is like, um, okay, how do we do this stuff? It's not how it works today. That's an interesting one because actually when we ran Supper Club in Edinburgh, we had a few people from the academic world there who were kind of talking about the way that the academic world is almost bought into all the worst parts of corporate culture and the way they think about new things. It's kind of tried to sort of almost ape the way that the consulting sector has been working for a while, maybe working a few years ago, it wasn't really embracing it fully. If you, if you wanted to disrupt the academic world, what are the kind of ideas you'd be trying to seed into that world? Um, there's a few things. Like I think the, the one of the core ones is you go to school, then you go to work, then you enjoy life. And that's still how a lot of it works. We've got to realize learning's lifelong. I know a lot of schools will say, oh, we're doing continuing education and adult education. I'm like, no. I get it because there's demand for it. So you're meeting the demand. But what I'm trying to say is we got to embed in everyone from the start that learning is a lifelong thing. That's number one. Number two is I think it should be less separate. Like there's school and then there's work. I think we need to embed more apprenticeship and mentorship, bring corporation into high schools, grade schools and in universities, um, higher education, um, mix the two. So I think the future learning is experiential, work integrated, blended and continuous. Experiential is easy. People want to do stuff. Work integrated means it's tied to your personal objectives, what you're trying to achieve. It's not a sample case study. It's real important to you. Blended means there's lots of ed tech asynchronous learning, but I still believe there's a social com component to learning and a mentored apprentice component to learning that's ongoing. And then... Continuous means like we can't say you took the course and now you're good. What's the next course or what's the next course of learning? 
Um, and so most education is not built like that. It's built to be once and done. Take the class and then you're good. That's not ongoing mentored, apprenticed in changing context. And to do that, you have to be in the flow of real work. You can't just be an academic. You have to actually be doing stuff. So that's why we got to merge them together. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice for the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentorship, or sometimes to just collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. I, mean, I guess it's interesting. So as, as you've been taking these ideas out in the world, do you... You know, you start to if you walk into a room and start to see a leader who's going to get it more easily than others, or are there certain sectors that are closer to it than others, or yeah, or... yeah, I think you're exactly right. Like that's probably my number one litmus test is is are you curious to try something? And I've I've done some very interesting experiments in higher ed, including you know trade schools and colleges and universities. Done some interesting things in high school and a lot of interesting things at in the workplace, and you know for the most part, these things are working. So that's generating like more interest and more, more like, let's try the next thing or the next thing. But, um, they're, yeah, looking for folks, especially at the leadership level that are willing and interested, but also want to participate. So the, the, right. if that, those two characteristics are probably all I need to get started. Right. Okay. So I guess, yes. Okay. Because I guess there's a risk sometimes you must get leaders who are saying this servant leadership thing sounds great. And I, I think the middle managers should do that. <laughs> I guess is that. Right, a... right. <laughs> yeah, I think upskilling everyone into how to how to understand agile or innovation would be amazing. So yeah. when do you start with my team? I'm like, I want to start with you. Uh, okay. And I need you to be vulnerable and I want you to try stuff. Yeah. Okay. Vulnerability is a hard thing to ask people, especially <laughs> leaders in, in, in organizations. So you bet. It's a bravery thing. You bet. So, okay, so you, you've been kind of, you know, formulating these ideas and then you went into the supper club to talk about this last week. I know there were some people in that room you knew quite well, probably some you knew much less well. How did you find that whole experience of kind of unveiling this thing that's been in your brain out to the group like that? Oh, I, I loved it and I loved talking about it. Um, and it was, it was super energizing and enthusiastic. But the funny thing about the supper club type people are they're generally more willing to think outside the box. They're generally willing to try more things. So... Um, you know, I, I, you know, the instruction was don't talk, don't be a talking head, give us a quick overview and then let's have a dialogue. Yeah. And so I remember the first thing that happened that here it is, bam, drop the mic. And then, so it's just a whole lot of nodding. Like, yeah, makes sense. Let's do it. So that was the hardest part was like, Hey, anyone want to be the contrarian just for, for, you know, for giggles, like anybody think it doesn't make sense. So that was uh, really good. And then where we really got some really good dialogue was like, like, how do you really get traction? How do you really, the concepts make a ton of sense. That's actually not hard to do. It's all, you know, the rubber hits the road in the details. Yeah. And we had some really good dialogue around great experiences that people have seen and stuff that didn't go well or um, challenges that people saying, like, I don't believe that'll work. So I really enjoyed it. Um, it was a great dialogue. And, and, you know, like I, like to your point, I hope I'm just, igniting a little bit more of that coalition of the will. I hope there's at least a few of them that want to go try some of this stuff. You don't need to come back to me or anything to do it. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of good ideas that came out of it. So I found it super energizing. Yeah. Is that, is that an interesting kind of stage? This is at just now where I kind of feel like 
there's a real appreciation that lots around the way we do the way we work is going to have to change because of everything that's going on uh but there's a real uh, organizations almost don't want to face up to how fundamental some of that is i wonder if that's why you get that kind of dynamic in the room people going yeah we should do it and then you, the, con the controversy comes when you try and actually implement it right and you know i know that working with you guys like ian and yourself we invited a bunch of corporate leaders that didn't come yeah um some did and, and there was a lot of smart people for sure but we were we had a whole dialogue around the people that we invited that didn't want to come um and that that's like really kind of tore up my heart because that's the problem like um the folks that are leaving it to the next like i've got three years left i'm not gonna try and bite this off or you know that kind of stuff was it's frustrating um because like you said we're trying to make people vulnerable and really change and that's pretty terrifying for a lot of people um I want to do it in a very coached, managed, mentored, supportive way. Um, we've done that. We've taken real leaders into pretty specific places where they're questioning some of their own you know, values. Um, so it yeah. can be done. But yeah, the people that didn't come was something that we had also a dialogue around. It's like, we yeah. need more of that. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I think because you, you, I mean, you were also with this, you're kind of, you're leading the change in other people. It's the nature of working in consulting. You're, you're, leading change in other people's organizations and you're also leading change in your own. So, I mean, are you learning as you go through that cycle of, of, Oh my God. Process? I, I learned so much. Um, you know, I'm actually got a few coaches. I'm, I'm dealing with some folks. Like I've really understood there's a concept out there in a great book called immunity to change. And it's like, when you know, like the willingness, the knowledge, the approach, the desire to change isn't necessarily enough or else I would not be overweight. Um, cause that's all easy. So it's like, what is your mind and body doing to, to protect you from something that you're very fearful of? And if you can find that out and attack it in a supportive mentored coached way, then you can really make big change. So I've been looking at, you know, myself and say, what is it when I'm not willing to change? You know, where did that come from? It's quite deep. It's quite personal. Um, and you know, um, you know, I've been like really, uh, affected a few times in meetings, uh, like in, in sessions where I'm like analyzing this going, why can't I do these things at the same time? It's kind of liberating. We all have things that we're very fearful of. It could be, um, fearful of failure. I'm feeling not being respected. I'm not being viewed as successful. Uh, you know, and these are all things that if you actually understand that about each other, then we can put the supports in place to actually make you clear because, a lot of times the assumptions behind that make no sense. If I don't do a good job at this task, I won't be respected or I won't be loved or I won't be liked. That's not really true, but it's hard to, it's hard to separate that sometimes. So really understanding like what your big fear is, um, that that's when you can really unlock a lot of power. That's pretty hard to do and not, not willing for everyone, but when you can, that's amazing. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting. It's, it's kind of a good corrective to me because at some level I was thinking about the obstacles to change being kind of institutional, organizational. But actually, I guess to your point there, it takes such a step from the leaders of, of, of driving and there's a kind of vulnerability that comes from them and there's a facing in, there's aspects of facing into their fears. Um, well, these, these organizational obstacles, um, I, had, I had a client, we painted a beautiful North Star. Then I was trying to teach them, you know, innovation and crushing orthodoxy. We're running out of time. So I said, look, really quickly, 10 minutes, let's brainstorm stuff that happens in your org that is not contributing to that North Star that actually detracts from that North Star. We had 15 executives in 10 minutes. They came up with 81 things. 
81 things that they do in this organization. And it's just because it's the way it's been done. It's because of the way you expect it. And so I had the C-suite there and I'm like, well, we can, we can change all that. Like, so I feel like those, those um, governance, op models, principles, policies, they're crutches for people who don't really want to make change because we can change them. Yeah. Just to say this is how it has to be or this is the way we do it here. You know, that's just someone who doesn't want to go up against it. I always think it's interesting with organizations and businesses that it's so much easier to start doing a new thing than it is to stop doing an old thing. This is there's something in the way people work or or brands work. It's just as uh, yeah, the, 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 that's where the real leadership comes in. Yeah, and I mean, there's like entire industries, you know, where you're like, this is not heading in a good direction, but they can't help themselves. And we can go back to the old standard Kodak or Blockbuster or whatever examples, but and those are individual companies. But there's like, even at the industry level, you can see that it's all heading in the wrong direction. And they can't change the rails. Um, that's why it's often that you know real disruption comes from without, right? It yeah. wasn't it wasn't a hotel company that became the largest um, hotels by rooms rented. You know, it was Airbnb. It wasn't New York taxi guys that figured out Uber. Yeah. You know? And and that's not to say organizations can't do it from within. It's just to your point, the comfort of pattern is really yeah. hard to break. Yeah. Yeah, I always think it's a good example, which is people always talk about Kodak as if Kodak didn't know that digital cameras were coming. They did know. They just couldn't get them couldn't the get end, their own way. They, yeah, they, the first <laughs> digital patent, right? Yeah, yeah. It's an incredible um, story, though. So, yeah, it's 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 uh, it's the comfort and pattern, and also it's like the willingness. And what I find in a lot of leaders is like, I'm going to leave that to the next person. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I'll look people in the eyes, and they'll say that I agree with everything you're saying. But not right now, <laughs> right? <laughs> so on the night, was it? Was there? Is it? Were there any questions that you got that kind of stuck in your mind, or comments that kind of stuck in your mind as either things you wouldn't have thought of, or things you just thought were really acute? Well, the, I mean, the first specifics. Let me think about. But the first thing was just the general desire by everyone in the room, and and there, it was a really great. There was young folks. There was more experienced folks. There was you know, corporate folks, startup folks. It was really great, great group. But the willingness really kind of warmed my heart. Like it was like, yeah, I think we can do this. Um, you know, we started talking about, say, orthodoxy in education. And uh, a lot of people thought, you know, you're talking about core that won't get broken. Um, so even even among, I guess the, the two sides of that coin, Nick, where I was super warmed by the desire to change. But by these folks that are real catalysts for change, yeah, I was also a little com- like concerned by their own comfort and willing and you know where the boundaries they thought existed were, yeah. And I'm like, why is that a boundary? Like, so it was kind of like one-on-one conversations around, hey, Gord, you know, you really can't change that. I'm like, why can't? We? Like, why not? When uh, I'm like, you're a change agent. That's mildly terrifying that you don't think you can change. So. Yeah. There are some things, but I, I really think there are some big challenges that we have. But I actually don't think you need to hit the challenge head on. I think what you can do is like set that fire around it and it'll consume it and it'll have changed without no one having to know it. I used to do that all the time. And I think you know that. I used to say, we're going to change you, your company to be more digital. No one has to know. I prefer if you don't tell everybody because there's been a whole lot of like, we're going to change and it didn't happen. Yeah. 
yeah. Don't, let's just do it. Well, that was, that was the whole digital transformation scene for a while, wasn't it? It was kind of like make the big presentation. Right. Um, and then get lost. Yeah. <laughs> you literally have people coming to me going, I know this. I'm just going to wait this out. You guys are going to run out of gas and then we'll be right back to where we are. So I started telling people, like, let's just not make a big deal about it. Let, like, we could make a big deal about our North Star, make a big deal about where we're going, but we don't have to keep saying the T word. Yeah. I think, you know, like in Canada, the T word isn't a great word. It's a big protected oligopoly for the most part. And, yeah. And so I don't use it in the U S or somewhere like that. They're more willing to be transformative. Um, but you know, in truth, that's not really true. People think they are, but there's, there's tied orthodoxies everywhere else. Yeah. I, I would, I would say it's the same in the UK. People use the word a lot more, but they don't necessarily mean it or mean change. They mean, they mean kind of selling the status quo a bit more. So, I mean, I, I'll ask you why you come why, why you came to supper club in a bit but actually the in, in the spirit of lighting the fire one of the things we do know through our analytics is that some of the people who don't come to the supper clubs do listen to the podcast and things afterwards so in terms of this whole kind of attitude of operating in that way learning as you go you know why should some of those folk have come to the supper club look i think i think it's it's a pretty common problem that our teams are not future ready they don't have the skills that we need like ai analytics whatever then during competencies like communication, collaboration, creativity, like those first are things you never master. You can always get better at it, but it's a big part of the challenge we have. Yeah. Um, and then, and then we need to, it's pretty clear. We need to think, act and behave differently. So we need to work differently. We need to embrace agile mindset, not agile method, but the way it came about. We need to embrace innovation, not big eye or reinventing the industry all the time, but how to crush orthodoxy. And we need to embrace human-centered and design thinking way more. Um, and we need to build up these skills and competencies. So I think that's not hard to get people to buy into. So then the challenge becomes, how do you get started? I think you really get started with, uh, with a very purposeful, in-the-flow-of-work program where you're changing behavior through nudges and shoves and you're building up competency in a mentored, guided way that's thought out. Like, I have a curricula for you, whether people know it or not, this is where we're heading. Mm -hmm. Not because everyone can show me cool little experiments. We This team did this thing differently. But muscle memory will come in and just, like, bring it back to where it was. So we need a purposeful, thought out approach to how we're going to change culture, change behavior, change ways of working, and change competencies and skills. And it can all be done. It, it, it's it's so I would say get started and it doesn't have to be a big project. I've done this with like 10 people as long as you want to try it out. So I think, you know, it's about getting started. I think we all know we need to change this stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. So I will come back to the other question. There. It's interesting though in the context of like muscle memory and you, because there's plenty of people in your position who wouldn't be going to events and small restaurants talking about the future of work and such things and turning up to supper clubs and things like it around the world. So, so what is it that, you know, why do you do that? Why, why are you so open to these kind of things? Um, part of it is like a bit of my, my background and DNA. Like, uh, you know, my mother was a reference librarian and I've just got a real curiosity. So as you know, Nick, like we work very closely together. I'm not, I'm not a market gravity type person or a, you know, I'm not a human centered design person, a design thinker, a product and service innovation person, but I loved it. And I took all the training. I can't do it. I still can't do it, but I get it. And I get what you need to bring and I get, you need new skill sets. So 
I think it's just I, I've got a more natural curiosity. But um, I think there's another part of it is like I've moved the cheese several times. I, um, you know, when I started digital, a lot of my colleagues would say, Gord, I've known you for 20 years and you're not any more digital than I am. Like we are old school because I was I was in a large big four consultancy. Um, and then, you know, then, then thing, then I started to act and behave differently and show up differently because I was learning. So I think that, that I've just had, um, experience doing it and found it very rejuvenating and, in, and interesting and, and really want to really want to spread that fire, like really want to take it to other people. Um, and I also think it's like important, um, not just for our own client our, our customers and our economies like i keep saying if canada doesn't figure this out then we'll just be doing low value commodity services that you know maybe emerging company um economies were doing before you know so it's important for us to be on the front edge of being future ready so i i, I have a real personal and where i work at ey our purpose statement is building a better working world i keep saying i want to make people ready to flourish in that working like I could build it, but if if people aren't happy, flourishing, then it wasn't really good. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. That's a that's a that's a, that's a bold that's a bold vision. It's also incredible with the format as well because we ran it for the first time in the UK a few months ago, a couple of months ago, and I wasn't sure if it would work quite in the same way because I, I do think Canadians and and Americans, if I can temporarily put you in a bracket, but like they're much much better at turning up to a thing and saying hi and this is what I do and let's be really open to it. But I think the thing that's interesting is like that coalition of the willing people who are open to things, you put them in a room and it's amazing the connections they build by accident. Right. People you'd never predict can, can sort of find some link. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And it was really interesting to walk around the room and find out how people made their way there. Very interesting. Um, and it was through some sort of connection like that. And things like supper club are not, um, I think everybody's going to leave with a lot of energy, enthusiasm, and like some pep in their step. And I don't, I don't know anybody who doesn't want to get more energy from things. The world is sucking our energy like at every turn. And so, you know, the best part of it is like, um, we don't have to solve it in the supper club and we're not really addressing like a big pertinent issue right now. We are what we are really taking some time to think. And I think this stuff, like I've talked about the return of the Renaissance where, if we can get technology to do more of the, da the the basic stuff, then we will have the whole coffee house phenomenon. We will be able to take the time to sit back and question big, big things and have really good dialogue about it. And and so I think that's what the Supper Club is. It's like the return of that Renaissance coffee, hub, coffee house. And it's, it's super um, interesting and fun. And you know that I've been there since the start, but it's, it's also gathering momentum and speed. Um, but I, I can't imagine why you wouldn't want to go. Like, I don't think anyone's gone and said that just wasn't for me. Yeah. And I think also, if you're trying to make change, a bit of peer support is helpful every now and then. Ideally with a, some nice food and a drink. But it's like, it's, it's every now and then you need to sort of... There's your a lot more people energy. thinking about it than you think. Because again, in large organizations or small ones, there's just so much running up against the wall when you get in a room like that and you realize, hey, I'm not pushing alone. Um, I'm not beating my head against this thing alone. If we all smack our head against this wall at the same time, maybe I actually can knock it over. So maybe that's not a good idea. But anyway, like I played rugby, so you know I'm used to that. But um, yeah, so it's it's uh, it's a really uh, positive experience, personally. Well, yeah, Gord, I don't know you played rugby as well. as Rugby and cricket is the two most surprising sports for Canadians to be into. You're, uh, you're right across, so... <laughs> Yeah, 
If you had full contact cricket, it would be a lot more popular in Canada. <laughs> There's not enough fights in cricket. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that concludes Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast, no matter your platform. And of course, start your journey with us today at labelsessions.com.